0: X-ray.
1: Welcome to the local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's March 23rd, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Coming up on the local, our interview with Mayor Ted Wheeler, talking about Portland's pandemic response in the context of his re election
0: bid. We need to address the pandemic effectively. And we also need to keep our heads screwed on straight and really be thoughtful about how to keep our economy humming, keep people employed, make sure that families can stay in their housing. But first,
1: it's time for today's Quick Six Local Rundown. As a Sunday, with 24 new reported cases, Oregon has a total of 161 known cases of the novel coronavirus. Oregon now has five known deaths related to the virus. Washington County has the most reported cases of any county with 13. Though with the paucity of testing, the potential of having the virus without symptoms and thereby not knowing you've got it, experts presume the number of cases to be significantly higher. We don't know whether the higher case rate in Washington County is related to how many people have it or just how many people have been tested. By the way, When we hear novel, why does that matter? It means it's new, which means no one in the world had built up an immunity to it. And certainly nowhere near the 70 to 80 percent it takes for herd immunity. Thanks for that info to Larry Brilliant, the guy who helped beat smallpox. Lynn County announced its first coronavirus related death on Sunday, a 90 year old veteran who had underlying medical conditions, according to the Oregon Health Authority. And as of Sunday, the Washington State Department of Health has announced 1,793 cases of the virus in that state, 94 related deaths. That includes a confirmed diagnosis in every county in Washington state. That means it's not just a rural or just an urban thing. At a Friday night press conference, Governor Kate Brown, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, and Multnomah County Chair Deborah Gaffori came out and announced a policy. They called it Stay Home and Stay Healthy. Governor Kate Brown stopped short of a statewide version of the shelter-in-place policy that California adopted. Washington has also not adopted such a shelter-in-place policy. Word on the street is that some groups, including Oregon Business and Industry and some other business groups, don't want all the businesses and consumption shut down. Local mayors have urged the governor to go further. Things are moving fast. On Saturday, 25 local mayors urged for a statewide shelter-in-place order that would bar folks from leaving their homes except for certain essential functions and certain critical trips. That call was joined by former mayor and candidate for city council Sam Adams. And on Sunday, Mayor Ted Wheeler said he would like to see a statewide push to enforce social distancing measures, going so far as to say if the governor didn't issue a statewide stay-at-home order, he was prepared to do so today on Monday. Governor Kate Brown has issued an executive order temporarily halting residential evictions for non-payment during the public health crisis. The statewide order will remain in place for 90 days. The governor's office has also acknowledged that landlords and property owners face challenges as well. Brown and the coronavirus Economic Advisory Council are talking to lenders and looking for options for relief to those groups as well. And when we say relief, in this context, it generally means money. Oregon coastal cities began declaring emergencies to limit public gatherings on Saturday. Warrenton and Seaside both declared emergencies on Saturday, with Warrenton enacting limits on camping and lodging aimed at keeping visitors away through the end of April. And then on Sunday, Manzanita gave visitors 24 hours to get out of town. Turns out if you want to go to the beach, You'll have to do it on social media or in a Zoom meeting, just like everybody else. Oregon Secretary of State Bev Clarno announced last week that Oregon's May 19th primary election will proceed as planned. Ballots will be mailed out to voters no later than April 29th. Military and overseas voters will get their ballots mailed no later than April 4th. The deadline to register to vote or update your online voter registration information is April 28th. And to help you get ready for the election, we're going to be interviewing over 50 candidates for local office. Emily says it might get to 75. So every morning you can meet the folks who want to lead your government. Democracy may die in darkness, but we can't let it wither in a pandemic. And at this moment, we're especially glad to be in a vote-by-mail state. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Coming up is our interview with Ted Wheeler from the other day, part of our comprehensive series of candidate interviews. In this context, though, he was speaking both as a candidate and as a mayor in a crisis. Yesterday, Governor Kate Brown declined to issue a formal shelter-in-place order, indicating she had no current plans for further executive orders. The governor did issue a statewide moratorium on evictions for 90 days, following on the heels of local governments like Multnomah County. Brown tweeted Sunday morning, the following. On Friday night, I asked all Oregonians on the eve of spring break to stay home and stay healthy. Unfortunately, our trails and beaches were packed this weekend. I want to be absolutely clear, you are endangering all Oregonians when not following social distancing orders. However, there has been no further action beyond the statement to enforce this. If you go outside, you may be revisited with a strongly worded letter. Several officials from around the state have urged Governor Brown to issue a stronger order. Groups include 25 metro area mayors, all metro county chairs, Mayor Ted Wheeler, the Oregon Nurses Association, and the Oregon Academy of Family Physicians. Such calls came on the heels of executive orders from governors in Illinois, New York, and California, although Washington Governor Jay Inslee has expressed no plans for such an order from the original epicenter of the U.S. outbreak. Portland Ted Wheeler has said he may issue a shelter-in-place order with or without Governor's support by today on Monday. On Sunday, the mayor directly called for the governor to issue such a statewide stay-at-home order, saying, we remain hopeful you will act, but if not, I'm ready to act for Portland tomorrow. Shelter-in-Place has seen mounting support due to a bunch of Oregonians still gathering in large groups. We had photos of crowded beaches and parks. All around the state, public health officials have recommended people socially distance and remain six feet apart from folks you don't live with. For instance, right now, as we record, we are not in the same room. We're doing this all remotely. This weekend, the beginning of what should have been spring break across the state, several coastal mayors expressed their frustration with tourists from other parts of the state fleeing to the beaches. Astoria Mayor Bruce Jones denounced a resolution passed by the city for a prohibition on vacation and leisure travelers in our hotels and our short-term lodging. Tillamook Mayor Suzanne Weber told tourists to pack your bags and leave immediately. It's not safe for you or your community for you to be here. The mayor of Warrenton described hundreds of people in one place, clogged highways, a real and present threat of the virus spreading to residents and overwhelming medical facilities, and they too issued a city resolution against tourism. Not forever, but until this calms down a bit, now allowing city police to arrest offenders. Regardless of city and statewide orders, we at X-Ray do urge listeners to stay at home, practice social distancing, consider our vulnerable communities, know that you might have it even if you don't know you have it, this is no average spring break. we got to come together, even when we're apart, to stop the spread of COVID-19. And now our interview with Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler running for re-election. We sat down with Mayor Wheeler on March 13th. It's good to see you, and thanks for coming. The, as we were talking a little bit before we started, at this very moment, you're both a candidate and the mayor. Now, I know that sounds absurd. That's true for anybody running for re-election. But during a global pandemic, it feels a little bit different.
0: Yeah, well, it, it is different first right off the bat because I'm the first candidate and mayor this century in the city of Portland. I'm the first person to seek re-election this century. But what makes it a little dicier right now is we are in the middle of a public health crisis. And so I'm out there speaking a lot using the language that's provided to me by public health authorities. I'm not bird-dogging this. I'm not going off uh, on my own. And people need to trust government more than ever right now. They need to understand the messaging. They need to trust that messaging and believe that it is coming from public health experts, not a political candidate. So it does get a little dicey.
1: I want to get wonky fast. Sure. We've seen a stock market crash. You can call it a Mm -hmm. crash at Mm -hmm. this point. The last time we saw a stock market crash, the unfunded liabilities of local governments doubled. The long-tail obligations that we have to retirees, for instance, in in primary part, don't go away just because the corpus of our retirement funds has been reduced, the investment funds. How are you thinking about the fiscal realities of Portland right now, not only for the next mayor for the next four years, but how that plays out beyond that? And does the state have a role to help local governments in times when there is this large unfunded liability?
0: The, the answer is yes. Uh, first of all, we've seen a major correction on Wall Street. We don't know how far it'll it go. It feel correct right now. It yeah, yeah, it's very it's incorrect. In, it most certainly doesn't. But I'll also tell you the markets were looking for an excuse to correct before this happened. But think about PERS, for example. PERS is a $75 billion fund it is not managed for the short-term, it's managed for the long-term. The assumption is it'll be around in perpetuity, and so they make investments based on their long-term views of the economy. Something else we did, because in, in 2008, we saw a lot of PERS retirees' portfolios wiped out, particularly people who are just about to retire. So we've corrected that something, somewhat in recent years, by creating a separate account that people could choose, whereby the closer they get to retirement, the more conservative their investments would be and they would be more likely to hold up the corpus of their retirement plan would hold up in times like these but you asked also about the role of government i think it's very important we saw in 2008 the obama administration coming in big on infrastructure and support for public employees and that had a made a huge impact here here in oregon some of the the large Transportation projects and other capital construction projects that were funded by the federal government were the only things keeping the trades employed during the Great Recession. And even at the local level, we're now looking through our economic development agency, Prosper Portland, on how we can help small businesses and small organizations and what strategies we could employ to help prop some of these organizations up during what's going to be a very challenging economic environment. And if I if I could just give you one one of the things that kept me up last night. Think about an organization like an arts organization. Let's yeah. just randomly pick the Oregon Symphony. Yeah. And I, I haven't spoken to them yet. But clearly they get more than 250 people in a room. There's close proximity. And so think about the implications for them, given that like most arts organizations, they're always right on the economic edge anyway And what this could mean. We could see the repercussion of layoffs beginning fairly quickly in this community. We could see arts and culture organizations, nonprofits and small businesses really hurt by this downturn, particularly if it's prolonged. And so we need to start thinking now about how we're going to get through a potential significant and maybe long-term economic shock. Talk about
1: scenarios. and uh, As you were saying, you can't right now predict whether it's going to be a high curve or a low curve, whether we're going to get through this fast or slow. But if you were going to paint three scenarios, right, the good news, bad news, somewhere in between, paint those pictures.
0: Well, right now, um, it's pure speculation. And I try not to speculate. I try to get my information from public health authorities. And what they're telling us is they don't know yet about the longevity of this crisis. It could be that at the end of this flu season, we start to see the cases of COVID-19 go down, just as you would at the end of a regular flu season. That would give the CDC and others a little more time to come up with an immunization strategy, hopefully before next year's flu season begins. On the other hand, uh, even if we go through this for, say, a month, if businesses are basically closed for a month, or people aren't able to work for basically a month, or this shock continues, there's no way that this won't create some longer-term economic impact. And so while it's a public health crisis at the moment, I'm already gearing up for the likelihood that this is going to become an economic problem, potentially for the longer term.
1: So who do you do in that context? Let's say it is. Let's say this is something akin to 2006, 2008, 2009, 2010, Or something, you know, maybe it's just 1987 where people lose a bunch of their pension funds and hedge fund guys lose a bunch of money. Or maybe this is more like 1929 when this lasts and is a lasting problem that transforms the American economy. What is the scenario that you are bracing for and or what do you do
0: in that context as the leader of a local government? Right. Well, the scenario I'm bracing for, the worst case scenario, and again, I I have no – factual data to suggest that this is actually how things are going to turn out. But the worst case scenario is that this lasts for three, four or five months. We have basically businesses shut down. People aren't gathering together, uh, you know, basic organizations who are expecting to have their fundraisers this spring don't have their fundraisers. People aren't attending civic events or arts or cultural events. Yeah, we events. just canceled ours, right? right. And, and, they, now we're, and now we're looking at the scenario like, what does that right. mean Every, for our budget? Everybody's canceling yeah. everything. And even think about you know the schools closing and some of the people who will inevitably be laid off as a result of that. This will trickle through the economy. So now the question is, what are the strategies? The good news, if you can call it that, is we've seen this movie before, and we know its strategies worked in 2008. And the best strategy was the federal government took significant economic steps towards keeping the economy going. And when President Obama issued basically zero-interest bonds to allow states to be able to engage not only in the construction of infrastructure, but also supporting the continuity of government, state and local government, that had a huge positive effect in helping us to weather the storm. We're also trying to think at the local level about how to protect the good work we've done through the Inclusive Business Resource Network, through the Neighborhood Prosperity Networks. We've spent a lot of time not just on uh, job training and technical assistance, but also on store improvements, on helping people gain access to retail space, to supporting the Mercatus and the My People's Markets. We want to keep those things going, but it's going to be very challenging to do in this new environment. Where so you, what do you do you that through like little income. micro grants? Do you do it like
1: by turning over by
0: using the city's sort of bonding
1: ability to borrow money to be able to distribute to community organizations? Like, what's the what is it actually? Look like? You can root we're, for we're, them, you can say looking, nice things. We're
0: looking at all those strategies, yeah. and, and you know, I'm putting my former state treasurer had on for a moment it's a little perilous to do it because it's not my job anymore but we missed an opportunity in 2008 that i've regretted ever since and that is that the federal government was artificially keeping interest rates effectively at zero and the stock market had gone down substantially we could have issued much more debt with a zero repayment rate and taken those proceeds and invested them in an already depressed stock market, which really was more sort of likely the crisis. to go up. And we could have created, for example, a permanent growing endowment for job training and education. Had we done that in 2008, we'd be sitting on about $150 million. Or for housing. Million. We missed the opportunity to land bank and to create housing opportunities, again, using the artificially suppressed interest rates provided by the federal government. And so I, I hope we get a little more innovative And are willing to break out of the box a little bit during this time to get back on our feet much more quickly. And we're already looking at the local level with Prosper Portland and some of our finance folks and our bond experts to see what can we do to keep portland's economy humming I mean, right right now we have one of the strongest economies in the north or at least two weeks north weeks american continent Every day's a new day jefferson but you know we shouldn't act like we're surprised that this happened we we live in a time of social media word travels quickly things like this happen there will be over corrections and we need to you know we, we need to prepare we need to to address the pandemic effectively and we also need to keep our heads screwed on straight, and really be thoughtful about how to keep our economy humming, keep people employed, make sure that families can stay in their housing. Uh, you know, I, I'm also, you know, I'm calling on people. We we said that the city of Portland is going to suspend. Uh, anybody having their water or their sewer shut off for non-payment. That, that would be ridiculous at this time when we're telling people to be healthy, to do those kinds of things. So I'm calling on the broader community, including the private sector, to ask themselves, to challenge themselves this week, what can they do to make life economically? Anybody doing something interesting?
1: Points? Anybody that you've called on who's responded in an inspiring way?
0: Well, they're, they're, you know, it, it's early, um, but I predict that by Monday, you're going to hear many things that many organizations and employers are doing to make sure that people stay employed, that, that uh, paychecks keep flowing as much as possible, that product uh, keeps flowing, that services keep flowing. But we're going to have to be innovative about it. And I, I want to give a shout out to the schools. The schools have had to react super quickly on this. And it's impressive to me to see how quickly schools are moving from classroom-based approaches to web-based approaches, literally overnight. That's the kind of innovation that this should be driving, and the kind of thinking that we should be engaged in. What about
1: landlords? What about landlords giving uh, giving rent breaks? I mean, if if immediately landlords said, "Hey, we're going to shave five percent now," so many landlords are so highly leveraged, right? That if right. they reduce their, you know, the bank's going to call their note. That's the trade-off. If they if they uh, if they lower rents too much, but if they shaved a little bit, right, gave people a little bit more money in their pocket to pay their delivery fees if they're not going to WinCo, if instead they're ordering online or if they've got to do without something for a while, Give, you know, help them weather a storm for all these people whose jobs are event-driven, who people work in venues, people work in bars, ain't nobody going to bars, people are, whose jobs are tip-based, who aren't earning their tips. Uh, what about something like that?
0: Well, uh, it, already under consideration. I spent a good chunk of last night thinking this through. Here here are three steps. If I could, if I could do this myself and yeah. I didn't have to have A 1,000 other people say yes first, here's what I would do, particularly with regard to rents. I would have uh, landlords not evicting people for financial reasons. In other words, uh, non-payment at this time. That is not helpful. Number two, I would ask that anybody who has the ability to curtail fees and other types of uh, bills that people pay, like the utility bills that that we have now suspended – This is not the time to be hard about collecting it. And number three, you just pointed out there's a trade-off. I've got people today just saying, why don't you come in and tell landlords, you know, non-payment, they can't evict people, et cetera, et cetera. But you have just correctly pointed out that a lot of landlords owe payments to their banks. So we also have to go up the food chain to the banks. And I intend to do that, to talk to the banks and say, if we are putting restrictions on landlords evicting people for financial reasons, can the banks also sacrifice here and work with us to not be too hard on the landlords so that they you – know, we don't want them to lose their buildings or have them go into receivership or anything else. That's not helpful to the economy. It's not helpful to the tenants, and it's not helpful to our local landlords. So there's a lot of work that needs to happen in the next couple of days to make this a reality. Let's
1: start this, or since we're sort of midway through, let me ask you the question, that ask everybody, which is, who are you? Why are you running?
0: Well, that is a broad question. Um, Who am I? Uh, How many minutes do I have? (laughs) Yeah, give the short (laughs) version. The the short version is this. I I was born and raised in the city of Portland. I love the city of Portland. Uh, It's changed a lot over the years, from the time that that I was a kid, from the time that I was in high school here at Lincoln High School, uh, to the city that it is today. But in terms of who I am... Uh, I'm somebody who decided a long time ago that I would never be satisfied in life if I wasn't engaged in the community, if I wasn't solving significant and meaningful problems, and that I couldn't go to bed at the end of the day if I didn't feel like I'd actually provided value to the community. So I love being the mayor of Portland because it truly is one of the most dynamic, interesting, progressive, successful communities It's known for its world-class livability. Uh, It's a place where people can come and and feel like they belong to something bigger. And so in that sense, it's really exciting. In terms of um, why I want to do this, I actually feel a sense of responsibility. And and people mostly laugh when I say this, but I, I really mean this. I have a background that gave me a lot of privileges and opportunities that most people in this community dream about i had a roof over my head i never had to worry about it nice roof. i was a nice roof i was fed i knew that uh, i wasn't going to end up on the street i knew i had access to good education i was surrounded by a family and a community that supported me and cared about my future and everybody should have those same opportunities, and we're not but, really a, a, a just society until people do. Yeah. And so, when I took this role as mayor, it wasn't just because I thought it would be super fun.
1: You're one of the richest mayors we've
0: ever had. The uh, well, I, I don't know that, but I I don't. You know, it could be true, yeah. Oh, one of us pretty broad. Uh, it
1: what's the biggest money problem you ever had? And if there isn't one that you can point to. How do you end up relating to the people who are right now wondering, oh, my goodness. And and I'm not saying like Mm -hmm. I, too, grew up with a roof over my head. I, too, need to claim my own privilege. But how do you find yourself Mm -hmm. relating to or what position what do you do to put yourself in the position so you can understand what's going on with somebody who's literally wondering if this last three months, what are they doing for June rent?
0: Right. It's a fair question, and it's one that that people ask all the time. I'm a walking stereotype. I mean, people can't see me on the radio, but I I am a walking stereotype of a middle-aged white dude and, um, I, you know, I believe that my background, my experience, my set of values, my belief that we should all have each other's backs, that that your success isn't necessarily because of you, and I'm pointing at me as I say that, yeah. um, your success is a responsibility and an obligation to turn around and help other people be where you are. I take that responsibility extremely seriously. And as proof of that, and the reason I think I have broad support as mayor is because I have done that throughout my career. When I was at Multnomah County, I was uh, the first elected official in this state to support and actually enact transgender health benefits. I was the first to support and actually enact Ban the Box so that people who come out of incarceration had a shot at a job and recovering their life. Uh, I helped champion the Health Equity Initiative, which is now a national best practice model looking at health outcomes based on racial and geographical disparity. And as I moved into the treasurer's office, the thing I worked the hardest on was creating, with others, the nation's first state-sponsored retirement plan that is mobile, that would allow seasonal workers and low-income workers and others to have access to a decent and secure retirement. And as mayor, the part I really love about this job is – it isn't doing stuff that's familiar to me. It's doing stuff that isn't familiar to me, working with the North, Northeast Housing Strategy, starting the Portland Committee on Community-Engaged Policing, which is mostly made up of, of uh, African-American local residents, but many others as well. Uh, in the work that I'm doing with Joanne Hardesty on the Portland Clean Energy Fund and the street response, that's where the rubber meets the road. And so while I don't come from those lived experiences, while I don't have that background, while I could never claim to walk in the shoes of other people who have, I believe I've demonstrated not only a desire, but also an ability to work with people who are very different, bring us all together and put strategies in place that make a difference in this city. And that's one of the things that's cool about this city is because you couldn't do this everywhere. Portland is unique in that regard. Yeah,
1: even voters will make you do stuff. Yes, yeah, absolutely, and they should. If you're looking back at your life and you were going to evaluate your greatest accomplishments by things that took real courage, that were hard strategically, it wasn't just, oh, yeah, everybody wanted this to happen, so we did it, and it impacted the most lives, both either, but preferably both in the near term and the long term, that mm-hmm. sort of impacted the trajectory of the city to serve more people, make their lives better, bend the arc of history towards justice. If you were going to pick two things, you can pick a different number if you want, but if you want to pick two things that you think you'd be proudest of in your first term, your, the term you've had as mayor, what would they be?
0: Well, uh, that, that's a great question. It's provocative, and I wish I had more time to think about it. But if, yeah, just off the top of my head, two things. Number one, big picture. We have, as I just said, one of the strongest economies or did uh, in the United States. And on a household income basis, median household income basis, out of the thousands of cities in this country, we are, all, we are actually defined as the 10th wealthiest. Despite that, despite those statistics, the reality is there are a lot of people in this community, many listening to this right now, who are hanging on by their fingernails. And COVID doesn't help any, by the way. Yeah. And, and, and I don't just mean for housing, but for basic health care, for the, the food they need to put on their table for their kids. Um, you know, the, the ability to see a stable future for themselves and their families in this community is in jeopardy. And so a broad brush, overarching theme of my administration has not been economic development, the way past mayors have described it. It's shared economic prosperity. And we've retooled, Prosper Portland to help us do that. So we're working with women and minority business owners. We're providing technical support. We're helping them get on their feet. Last year, the the Inclusive Business Resource Network that we started a couple of years ago helped over 1,000 small business owners and operators and entrepreneurs uh, with their success, the Neighborhood Prosperity, Network has been tremendously helpful. The Portland Means Progress Initiative that I created to help get young people of color into the workforce, to help them get their feet under them, to help support contractors who are women and minority contractors and create a culture of inclusivity and diversity. These these may seem like small things independently, but when you do them collectively and when you think about how to rebuild the city, for example, the, the, the Broadway corridor over by the post office, we're letting community lead on that initiative. We have the chance to create a broader economic prosperity. The second issue is, is without question. We can't continue to say we're a progressive, successful city when we have so darn many people living on our streets. And, and that has been my primary focus, is to work with the county and, and service providers and many, many others to make real inroads on our homeless population. And for me, that means retooling towards the chronic homeless population, those who've been on the streets the longest, those with addiction issues, mental health, uh, other disability issues, we are are refocusing our efforts on that population, and we have to make progress there. It's an imperative.
1: What's the best thing you've done on that front, or what's the dumbest thing you've done, or the most important thing you failed to do?
0: Well, th- this, this is me we're talking about. So, sure. You know, you know d- dumb can come in spades in my life, and at least I'm smart enough to recognize it. Uh, But in terms of SMART, we've done some really good stuff. And and again, I'm I'm not just talking about me. I work with a a whole coalition of of dedicated, passionate people. But we know that when we focus our attention and our resources on a segment of the homeless population, we can make true progress. And we did that with homeless veterans. We have done that with homeless women. And we've done that with families. And recently, we implemented... What's our our chronic homeless plan to reflect the fact that more of the people on our streets, particularly those who are unsheltered, are chronically homeless, so they've been there a while and they have coexisting conditions. We are now not just creating shelters, we're creating navigation centers. So when somebody comes in, they're connected to services. The intention isn't for them to go back on the street. The intention is for them to get treatment for substance abuse, to connect them to mental health services, domestic violence survivorship services, disability services, benefits that they're entitled to that they may not be connected to, help people get back on their feet. The next thing we did related to the navigation centers was realized a lot of the folks we're talking about aren't going to come to us. They're not going to go to a shelter, even if it's a a navigation center. We have to go to them. And so working with the county, deploying the navigation teams, I think has been a fantastic and so far effective strategy by going out, To the camps, going out to where people are and connecting. How does COVID
1: 19 change that strategy or what does it do? All the people, I mean, I think of so many. In fact, I asked some people, hey, what should we ask the mayor? And it's amazing how many of the questions seen through the lens of the current health crisis and particularly the intersection of a lot of these issues, right? What should we do with our organizations? Should we encourage or discourage or ban gatherings under 250, right? Sort of between that 49 and 249 level? should we, uh, what are we going to do about our houseless population who not only won't have access to tests, but also, you know, their interactions are not, they're not going to have access to all the information necessarily, and will be the most vulnerable, and many of whom might be immunosuppressed or have underlying health conditions. Uh, how do you, again, connect that, what you've been talking about right now, to what we started talking about?
0: Yeah, so this is an all hands-on deck public health crisis, and the good news is government's not going to do it all alone. And in fact, I I read a good newsletter yesterday from Street Roots, and they talked about how they're creating go teams, how they're creating strategies to help get the word out to the homeless population and check in on people who are vulnerable, which, by the way, is virtually everyone who is on the streets. In terms of our government response to the shelter system, we are working very hard to get people who are in the shelters who are at the highest risk levels. So those with the, the the most significant health issues, those who are older, we're getting them out of the shelters and either putting them in the motels with vouchers or other circumstances where they are more likely to be successful throughout the COVID nineteen issue. We also have our our up Camp remediation program. They are also changing their strategies based on this as well. Th- things are going to have to change and the the thing i want people to know about the homeless population on our streets is even if you know by definition some of the people on the streets don't meet the risk criteria you know young guys for example they still are at high risk for covid-19 because they probably have coexisting health conditions or other circumstances that that make them high risk so what i would tell people to do is Um, Again, I get all my information from public health authorities, but I'll I'll go slightly off script and say, don't be stupid about it. Um, What the health authorities are telling us is less than 250 is fine indoors, provided that you can maintain social distancing. Social distancing, as they are defining it, is have people about six feet feet apart from each other. So if you can have an event where people come in and – they can still maintain that social distancing. Health authorities tell us that's fine. They also tell us that at-risk populations should not participate. They should not attend. So if they're older, if they have health conditions, if they have weakened systems, um, they should not participate. And the most important advice anybody can give right now is if you are sick, stay away.
1: Any of this stuff scare you?
0: Um, you know, ironically, it's not the pandemic that scares me. It's this is our first pandemic in an age of social media. And so information and misinformation is flying around at the speed of light. And my concern is the public perceptions are getting ahead of what the public health authorities are advising. And so, you know, we'll we'll learn a lot from this exercise. This is not the most virulent type of pandemic scenario. I'm not in any way belittling it or saying it's not serious. Lives are at stake. But the mortality rate here is about 1%. What if this were a pandemic with a 20% mortality rate? Would we really be able to say right here and now, Jefferson, that we're prepared for it? I think the answer is unequivocally no. So I hope as we go through this pandemic and we learn from it, that we have a you know, r- regularly ongoing stood up response to pandemic because we're going to see more of these. The world's becoming more populous. We live in closer quarters. We are now converging here in the United yep. States on urban areas. This is a reality that we must prepare for. Now,
1: mayor's mayor is a big deal in this thing. What about drive-through testing centers? Uh, when can we get these at scale? We've seen them in Germany and Japan. The difference between Italy's response and South Korea's response, uh, for instance, and so and people can point to China. China has a very different governmental system, so I'm not saying that we're going to you know run exactly like China. But South Korea... Does have some lessons we can learn from, and one of them is making sure that people can test and then quarantine relatively quickly. What can a mayor do to make sure that we're
0: all? We're, it's not only Tom Hanks who gets a test. Really, those tests should be reserved for people who are at high risk. And so, you know, that that's neither here nor there. Now we're not going to get invited to the Academy Awards, Jefferson. Yeah. We blew it. <laughs> but with regard to drive-through, um, again, this is something that the governor and the director of the Oregon Health Authority, Paul Allen, were asked yesterday in the press conference they spoke to this issue um, it is something that that obviously the Oregon Health Authority and local health officials have on their radar the city's role in this would be permitting we would you know the city has a standing just let them know. Um, yeah yeah we we absolutely have a a um, a prohibition on drive-throughs in the city of Portland that's been around for a number of years for a number of planning reasons we would have to lift that preemption and of course we would do it
1: Question from a listener. When you were running for office, you promised to have a shelter bed for every unsheltered homeless person in Portland by the end of your second year in office. Uh, you can correct that if that's a misquote. Uh, when asked about why you were unable to miss this goal, you said you underestimated the gravity of the situation. The way they put the question is, why should we believe anything you say now? But the uh, is there is there any lesson learned from that? Uh, any comment you want to have in response to that question?
0: Yeah, uh, I, I have a lot to say on that. First of all, I don't think any of us four years ago could have predicted how the homeless crisis would change, and it has changed. It's changed markedly, and anybody who just walks out their front door or walks out onto the street sees that to be the case. I don't believe we had an understanding of how um, it wouldn't just be about shelter and getting people inside. That's where we were five years ago. Get people off the streets, get them into a shelter, get them out of the rain. That no longer cuts it. What you need to do now is connect people with services in order to help them get off and stay off the street. So now the focus isn't just on the shelter. It's also on the service delivery associated with that shelter. And that takes a lot of resources. So there's competition for resources around prevention. And last year, we prevented 7,000 people from becoming homeless. It's in the transition off the streets. Last year, 6,000 people were moved off the streets or out of shelter Into housing, and we have begun to focus on mental health services, addiction services, the navigation centers, the navigation teams, and a significant commitment to supportive housing. In other words, if you take somebody who's been on the streets for five years who has an addiction issue or a mental health issue, even if you hand them the keys to a low income unit, they're not going to be successful without the services to help them stay successful. And so our focus holistically is on that approach. The second thing that's changed is the mayor doesn't call the shots independently. We have created a really good partnership with the county, with service providers, with the hospitals, public health providers, and others to help enact this broad strategy. And so, yes, um, you asked why should people trust me because I said that we did not achieve that goal. But I've owned up to it, and I've been honest about why. And um, to me, trust isn't about being 100% right 100% of the time. It's about, am I being honest? Are we learning? Are we evolving? Is our understanding of the problem changes? And uh, I'm very proud of what the coalition is doing and how they're doing it, and I see myself as an integral part of that coalition.
1: All right. Mayor Ted Wheeler, thanks for sitting in the seat. Thanks for sharing your time. This is your daily local news podcast. We're calling it The Local, your hometown in 30 minutes. We'll be back tomorrow with more news from Portland and beyond. Stay safe out there. Or maybe stay safe in there.